You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, September 22nd, the first day of fall. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. All evacuation orders have been lifted for grateful victims of the Mosquito Fire. The recent rains have washed the smoke from our skies, but in the California report, Stanford scientists who track wildfire pollution find that it's canceling out gains made by the Clean Air Act. After regional news and weather, a fish-out-of-water story from KVMR's Nell and Gorin. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Changes are coming to California's masking policies. Effective tomorrow, the state will be further easing its recommendations and leaving more to personal choice. As KCRW's Tara Atrian reports, the new guidance revolves around COVID community levels set by the federal government. The California Department of Public Health's new recommendations are based on the COVID status of a resident's county. The CDC uses a combination of factors like hospital admissions linked to the virus and the rate of new infections to determine it. When the changes go into effect Friday, if a county's in the low level, the broad population can choose to mask up based on personal preference. However, those more susceptible to COVID should consider wearing a mask in crowded indoor settings. When a county's in the medium tier, widespread mask wearing should be a consideration for most people, while it becomes recommended for those at higher risk. At the highest viral level, the state recommends everyone wear a mask when inside crowded enclosed spaces. Local governments can choose to be stricter than the state, but the update still opens the door for certain congregate settings like prisons and homeless shelters to soften their face covering policies when community levels are low. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. And those recommendations do not apply to healthcare settings and nursing homes. Masks in those settings are still required for all people, regardless of vaccination status. And in other news, Attorney General Rob Bonta is creating an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer reports. The Attorney General said the new initiative will use data and public health measures to implement steps aimed at reducing gun violence. Speaking at a nonprofit in San Francisco that works in high schools to reduce violence, Bonta said prosecuting gun related crimes isn't enough. To me, the best crime is the crime that never is, that never occurs, where there's no victim and no survivor, no one is injured, no one's life is cut short, no one's life is taken. California has one of the lowest rates of gun-related deaths in the nation. Still, nearly 3,500 people died from gun violence in California in 2020, and four people who were shot and killed in Oakland earlier this week alone. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Some good news in the battle against the mosquito fire in the Sierra foothills as all evacuation orders have been lifted for residents in El Dorado and Placer counties. Fire officials lifted the last evacuation orders on Wednesday, although they do warn residents that there are still some road closures in the fire area. Judy Hall has lived in Michigan Bluff for decades. She spoke to ABC 10 in Sacramento after returning to her home, which was saved by fire crews. I can't even begin to describe what all they did to protect these homes. Hall's home was saved, but she says some of her neighbors had major damage on their property and could be forced to move. Daryl Moore of Todd Valley tells ABC 10 that he's grateful for all the work firefighters have put in. It was scary to to think that this could all be gone. Uh, was pretty tough. Just unbelievable people. That's all I can say. Just thankful. 
Fire officials are warning people that as they do return home, they could encounter toxic and hazardous materials. The fire has burned 76,000 acres and is 49% contained. Hundreds of miles from where a wildfire begins, smoke can choke the sky and turn it orange. Soot and other airborne pollutants from fire are a fast-growing public health problem in California. And in a new paper, scientists from Stanford University estimate millions of people live where wildfire smoke has made breathing unhealthy. Joining me now to talk about this is Molly Peterson from our California Newsroom Collaboration. Hi, Molly. Glad to be here. So last year, public radio reporters found that wildfire smoke from California can extend across the country. But what more have scientists learned about smoke pollution since then? Well, this year, the same scientists, some of them who advised the reporters who worked last year, these scientists have worked to further establish what's in the sky and connecting it to what people might have breathed on the ground. And what they've sort of estimated is that 27 times as many people live where the air is unhealthy, specifically from fires. That there are some places west of the Mississippi that have seen as much additional particulate pollution related to smoke as the Clean Air Act was supposed to clean from the skies in the last half century. So this is a significant increase in the potential risk from wildfire smoke for humans. Interesting. And we know that low-income people in Latino neighborhoods like in the Central Valley, they're already breathing air polluted by trucks and cars. So how did the scientists figure out what pollution is from fire and what isn't? Yeah, it's a difficult question because it's hard to track smoke for a few different reasons. Smoke doesn't move in some sort of smooth blanket over the skies. It curls and it moves in the winds and in the atmosphere. Um, It can be made up of different components depending on what is burning. So the scientists used estimates to sort of measure backward in time what happened in the last 16 years. They combined these satellite measurements with uh, ground-based monitors from the Environmental Protection Agency that they looked at what those ground-based monitors were measuring on days where they knew it was smoky, and they adjusted for potential other sources of particulate pollution. So they created their own model. And the burden falls heavily already on some populations more than others. So understanding this additional pollution makes a big difference. And if if this is a growing public health problem, have public agencies started to do anything about it? What they've done has been really small so far. They're giving out air filters to low-income communities and low-income families. Um, Some air districts are, you know, doing that. Some air districts are advising people how to stay safe. Uh, But the real question is how we meet the problem at its source, how we begin to think about managing forests and the risk of fires differently if it's going to affect human health. Great. Thanks again, Molly Peterson. You're welcome. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity. Hint: fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org.
And that's the California Report for Thursday, September 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Today's Sacramento Bee reports that thousands of people living in the vicinity of the Mosquito Fire won't have to worry about losing their homeowner's insurance, at least for a year. Today, State Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara issued a one-year ban that forbids carriers from dropping homeowners who live in the area of the fire. The order affects close to 50,000 homeowners split between Placer and El Dorado counties, plus about 225 homeowners in Nevada County. Homeowners' coverage has become a serious problem for many rural Californians in the past five years. Dropped by their carriers, tens of thousands of people have had to buy fire coverage from the California Fair Plan, the so-called insurer of last resort created by the legislature in the 1960s. The plan has no state subsidies, and for many homeowners, the total cost of insurance has tripled. After a big fire, companies will send out the dreaded non-renewal letters. Under a law Lara wrote while he was a state senator, the insurance commissioner may impose one-year moratoriums that prohibit insurers from dropping customers in areas hit with major wildfires. Caltrans is alerting folks driving Interstate 80 in Truckee to expect an extended closure of the Central Truckee eastbound off-ramp for continued reconstruction work. Originally scheduled to reopen Friday, the closure of the I-80 eastbound off-ramp at Central Truckee has now been extended through 5 p.m. Monday, October 3rd due to weather delays. Turning to the forecast from the National Weather Service, our region is returning to sunny skies and daytime temperatures in the 80s and 90s, except in the high country. Air quality data from purpleair.com indicates this afternoon that region-wide air quality is generally in the green or satisfactory zone. It will be mostly clear tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley with a low around 53. Friday in our area, sunny with a high near 81 and a low of 57. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, patchy freezing fog after 1 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 36. Friday in the Truckee and Greater Tahoe area, we'll see patchy freezing fog before 9 a.m., then sunny with a high near 71 and a low of 40. In Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear with a low in the mid-50s. Friday will be clear and sunny with a high near 86 at a low of 59. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. When urbanite Alexandra Sloan moved to Nevada County, her encounters with bears, wild turkeys, and septic systems made it abundantly clear she was not in Brooklyn anymore. She collects her stories in a book, Cabin in the Woods, or How a Kid from Brooklyn Wound Up with 20 Acres of Deer Poop. KVMR's Nell and Gorin caught up with the author to learn how Sloan grew to love her new rural life. You grew up in New York. In fact, you call yourself a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. And you traveled all over for your, your work with ABC Sports, which is how you met your husband, Robert, who also worked for them. And then later he got hired to work for a company in Grass Valley and announced you were moving here. 
And how did you feel about this move? So moving up here was mind-blowing. The first time we went to see the property that we wound up building on, I asked him if we were even still in the state because I had never seen, you know, 100-foot ponderosas lining the roads or uh, it was completely foreign to me. And the fact that, yeah, you really did, not only did you have to drive like you did in Los Angeles, but you may have to drive a lot further away (laughs) to get anything or to go uh, to places. So it was culture shock, culture shock of losing power for days on end. Uh, the, the whole idea of using a septic tank and a well, I thought when they were telling me what a septic tank was, I thought it was a joke. And I asked him, I said, are you kidding me? It was completely foreign concept, um, putting in a well. Uh, the first time we, I walked the property with a PG&E man, and uh, I said, so, I hear we're supposed to put in a, a generator. Do we, we lose power here in this area often? And he just laughed at me. So I said, okay, there's my answer. This was completely out of my realm of knowledge. You know, wildlife, I mean... I looked out my window, and here's this, a buck and a doe following him. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was just simply used to crazed squirrels. But here was this Bambi, you know, what I, to me. And I was astounded, flabbergasted. It was like, oh, my God, I could almost reach out and touch them. I really became attached to the wildlife. I felt kind of like a real-life Snow White. You know, or watch the quail with their little babies that look like walnuts with legs. You know, you can almost not see them. Uh, I became very attached to one fawn, one uh, doe, excuse me, just showed up one day with a tiny little fawn attached to her, hiding out behind her. And he would live there the rest of his life. And we became very bonded because he knew me from the time, and he, I was his human. There was just such a natural thing about it. I never fed them by hand, because I didn't want them getting that attached, because if they wandered somewhere else, somebody else might not be like me. And just the relationship that you can have between a person and an animal, and you don't think of that offhand. You think of it with dogs and cats, but not necessarily a bear, or a coyote, or a a deer. Um, We had a female bear that came with two little cubs. I'd be gardening and weed ripping, and all of a sudden I'd look up, and there she is laying against the thorny bush, keeping me company. And I never felt threatened. I kept it at a respectful distance, you know, didn't encroach on them, and they never encroached on me. I'd like to ask you to read a couple passages from your memoir, both of which deal with the local wildlife. Most people, especially those raised in cities, do not think of turkeys with incredible personalities. My living room window became my view to a world I had never thought of. Wild turkeys abounded. I was witness one day to a mother turkey making sure all chicks were accounted for and making an attitude adjustment for one. 
The street outside our house was a major one in the development. A huge hen walked out into the middle of the road. When she was sure traffic on both sides was stopped, she started calling to her children. One by one, they came down from a hill and scooted as fast as they could across the street while Mom held traffic. Seven of them were safely across, and she still stood there calling. With deliberate slowness, a male chick came down the hill. As he crossed in front of his mother, he spread his tail feathers, imitating the adult males. Mom wasn't buying it and bent down, biting him on his little butt. There was a small feathered streak going across the street to join his siblings. Mom then joined them and traffic resumed. I smiled and whispered, at a girl. So the next uh, excerpt I want you to read um, might be a little uh, upsetting to some listeners, but I think it's a great one about the cycle of life. <laughs> With us city folks came the habit of putting up a bug zapper. Robert hung it over the septic tank electrical box near the side door. It didn't take long before the amphibian wildlife discovered they had a dinner source without any work. As many as seven tree frogs would climb up and sit on the electrical box with another four or more below waiting for a hot and crispy. Some were adventurous and climbed toward the zapper to catch their prey and eat it raw before it could be cooked. The zapper was on a timer and they learned the cycle very quickly. You stood outside and watched. You could see the horde of tree frogs coming from all over to get a good spot for their meal to simply fall into their waiting laps. I think we have time for one more excerpt from your memoir. This one about a familiar little beast, the field mouse. Field mice were a part of life here. I hoped we had an understanding. They stayed outside and we would leave them alone. They managed to squeeze into the woodshed and the outside wood piles next to the shed were filled with them in the winter. You could hear them rustling under the tarps, and I was fine with that. They, like the other animals, were here long before we came. In the summer, the tarps were off, and I cleaned out the wood from their empty nests, food, and such. As the weather started to turn colder, I knew they were going to return. I had this vision of two mice, luggage in hand, the female mouse saying to her spouse, Look, Harold, the maid's been here! As they find their condo and settle in for the winter. Alex, it's been a great pleasure having you in the studio today at KVMR. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Want to know how building a house in the woods affects a marriage or how to react when you encounter a mountain lion? To find out, listen to our full interview with the very entertaining Alexandra Sloan, which you can find in the podcast section of our website, kvmr.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. When I was a kid, adults used to fling around a lot of instructions, such as, don't judge a book by its cover. Talk about laughable, as if everyone didn't constantly do this. No one did anything else, as far as I could see. My parents, my grandparents, they all opined about people they didn't know because of how they looked or acted. My dad's mother, in particular, hated how women would apply lipstick at a restaurant table and was always saying, why do women wear shorts at that age when they have such crepey legs? Crepe for you youngsters, as in crepe paper, which is that wrinkly kind of ribbon you use to decorate high school gyms for a dance. She meant the backs of the knees and thighs, which I can't see on myself, luckily, 
but I've been having a good time watching the skin on my arms get rows of fine, thin, parallel lines, kind of like beach sand after the tide goes out. For a child, hearing the people you rely on for food and shelter and are trying to please say stuff like this is confusing, especially when in the same breath they tell you not to do it. What one learns is that you can't help but judge a book by its cover, but you're not supposed to. It's unkind, so don't admit it, or only say so among very close friends. This is a long metaphoric preamble to telling you I've been working on the actual cover for my new book of radio commentary and laughing at how much I do want people to judge this book by its cover. I want everyone to buy the book because of its cover. That's how I'll earn some money, become slightly better known, and cheer up the general population, which is one of my goals in life. It's the best thing about self-publishing, that I have control over my book covers and can work with my friend Max on their design. We have so much fun. This one might be the most gorgeous yet. It's a peachy coral with dark teal lettering and features a photo of a skunk holding its fluffy tail high. I had to have a skunk because there's one in the title, but the skunks I'm writing about, who saunter into my kitchen to steal cat food, are hard to photograph in the middle of the night while I'm trying not to get sprayed. Luckily, a local news media magnate has skunks come to her bird feeders to eat what the birds drop on the ground and gave me some great pictures. I have not yet finished putting the insides of the book together, but having the cover to look at is a great incentive. The title makes me laugh. The colors are wonderful. I happen to know that the cover skunk is named Smarty, and having it be a community effort, me, Max, the media magnate, KVMR, and you listeners all being part of the community makes me feel incredibly happy. The next time you're dissing people about how they look, speak, behave, etc., cut yourself some slack. It's a very human impulse. Then stop by a bookstore or library and do the real thing. Judge books by their covers. Have fun. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. KVMR Community Radio gets support from MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience, providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. The showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue in Grass Valley, mecbuilds.com. And the Auburn State Theater presenting the Ray Charles Project Friday, September 23rd. Also, Kathy Matea and Susie Bogus together at last, Friday, October 7th. Both shows at 7.30. Auburn State Theater information is at livefromauburn.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Friday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.